Hey, Francis. That's a private part. It's very bright behind you. Yeah, sorry. I, I, listen, I'm self-isolating. I'm in Henley. Where are you in Henley? <laughs> I don't want to. I, I don't want to do what I did to you on the podcast, where I told you exactly where you live in the middle of Pusey. <laughs> Can I tell you, though, my apartment, right, it's got one, two, three, it's got eight different blinds, right? Eight different blinds. And last night I arrived here for self-isolating for this TV show. And I went to close the blinds and I couldn't shut them. I was like, what the hell? So I found this little controller, pressed it, and they're remote control blinds. So they go down by the controller. I was like, oh, this is cool. I had to find eight different controllers to (laughs) close each blind. (laughs) It was like like an Easter egg. It was like a universal one. Yeah, there wasn't. There's not a universal one. There's eight different ones, eight different controllers in the house that you have to find, like an Easter egg hunt, and you have to find them all. But why don't you just record facing the window so there's light on you? I am, but I did that in the podcast that we just did. I'm just recharging my laptop now, so that's why I'm facing oh. this way. Oh, yeah. Well, yeah, it was. All, I think that was a cracking episode. Gonna say it. Said it before, but I'm actually gonna say it again. Possibly one of my favorite ever. Yeah. Well. I I would have to agree. It's definitely definitely up there. We had, ladies and gentlemen, Raphael Rowe. Some people call him Raphael. Some people call him Raph. But actually, his name is Raphael Rowe. Raphael was sentenced to prison for murder for 12 years. And after 12 years, he was found not guilty. He was wrongfully accused for murder. And he was released um, back into the world. And his story of how he was wrongfully accused, how he lived in prison, um, how he fought the justice system every single day for 12 years through anger and through determination. He spoke Jamie, about can it. you imagine, you know... Oh, God. You're, twen- you're 20, you get arrested. Man. You're 20... You're, you're, you, 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 you know, this, this reality where you've done Made in Chelsea just is, is, is vanished. You're not on that anymore. You haven't been able to do all the Botox that you would have liked... <laughs> You're 32, you're coming out. Your, your hair is probably its natural colour. That's would the you worst. Survive? That's the worst thing about it. That's honestly the worst thing about it. You're ginger. Everyone's, <laughs> everyone can see that you're ginger. Honestly, I don't know if, if Rav is going to listen to this, but um, he was a complete legend. And uh, Rafael, if you're listening to this, thank you so much for gracing us with your presence. As he says in this, he had a lot, you know, he does podcasts or gets offered podcasts all the time. And he chose our one, which is a real honor to have that. Um, I don't think we need to give much more of an intro to this one, Francis. I think we just get on with it. I think it. we should just crack on. If you want to check out uh, Rafael's podcast, it's called Second Chance. It's on all podcast platforms. Or get his book, Notorious, or follow him on Instagram. Also, get Second in touch. Second Chance. Get in touch with us. Vara podcast at private uh, podcast Vara social media at private podcast send us a DM or reviews funny stories anything at all charities uh, individuals communities that you want us to donate to as well we'd love to hear from you or send us an email contact at privatepartspodcast.com as always we want to hear from you you private partners you brilliant people right Francis intro the episode ladies and gentlemen an incredible story incredible guest um we're very excited to introduce Raphael Rowe. Raphael Rowe. <laughs> Raphael Rowe. On the podcast. So, 
Raphael, before we even begin this podcast, I said it to you before, and it sounds like I'm really sucking up to you, which I am. I'm definitely <laughs> sucking up to you. There's no other way to put it. But I couldn't sleep last night. I was so excited for this podcast. Wow. Honestly. Wow, that sounds yeah, yeah. like girlfriend trouble stuff. You know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. That sounds beyond. Sorry. <laughs> yeah, it was nothing to do with you. It was just I had loads of nightmares. So it was just... <laughs> I was just thinking about your night. And it just got me very excited. <laughs> well, look, I'm, 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 I'm honoured to be here talking to you, Jamie, and your, and your team. So thanks for inviting me on. Dude, listen, um, you know, the funny thing is, before you came on the podcast, I said to you, how do we pronounce your name? Is it Raphael? Is it Rafael? Do I call you Raph? Like, what is it? And you said about, you know, you, you, you know, you try and make it a bit more sexy when you go to other countries. Ah, Raphael. But it's Rafael, isn't it? And some well, people get it yeah, wrong, right? It, it, my, my parents are, are the go-to here and they call me Rafael, but... If I'm in a, a Spanish-speaking country or, or, or another country where their their mother tongue is slightly more Frenchy or Spanishy, um, they call me Rafael, and I like that because it makes me sound more elegant, more exotic, and and whatever. But yeah, it's plain <laughs> Rafael actually. But call me Rafael or Rafael, depending on your mood. And, and if you're dreaming about me, no doubt it was Rafael. <laughs> no, yeah. If I was when I was dreaming about you, I just had a pet name. It was just Raf. That's okay. <laughs> yeah, and Raf's the, the the easy one. So Raph, <laughs> Raphael or Raphael, whatever you fancy. <laughs> Raphael, so, so Francis just here. So Francis and I both have the same thing where my surname's Lang. It's a Scottish pronunciation, but everyone my entire life has said Lang. And I've just now accepted the fact that that's what my surname is, even though it isn't. And with Francis, he has it where <laughs> we did a show together and we all called him Boulet. His name is Francis Bull, but anyone on the street calls him Boulet and he can't stand it. Isn't that right, Francis? Well, yeah, I mean, it, it's uh, just, I guess it's just not my name, is it? <laughs> no, I, 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 look, I feel your pain, guys, because, you know, I, I'm not even going to attempt to say your surname, Jamie, because I, I'm always thinking Jamie and I'm not going to say it. And, and, say it. Try and give it a go. Try and give it a go. Okay, so it's, it's Leng. Yeah, close, close. It's so hard. It's such a complicated. It's Lang, but it sounds like it's meant to be. It's it's Lang, but everyone says Lang, and it just honestly, it's been like that ever since I was, as I can remember. Everyone has always said that, so I just consider myself Bowie. It's like, is it Bowie? Is it Bowie? I'm just the same as him. <laughs> My hair definitely looks like it's. Uh... I know it's a. Have, I, you, have I miss... you have you gone a bit lighter? Yeah, I had a little bit of a dye session with it. It didn't go to plan. Um, it was just, I'm now, now, Rafael, you, I'm isolating at the moment in the beautiful Henley because I'm about to shoot a TV show down here for the next five weeks. So um, I, 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 I'm a natural blonde. Uh, it's just I like to add a little bit of a tint to it occasionally. And this time it went a little bit too white. But anyway, that's beside it. Um, Rafael, listen, um, we... As we said, we are so excited to have you on. And I can imagine that you go on to every podcast, you do your TV shows, all these different things. And the same question you get answered, asked the whole time is about your story. And I'm going to be one of those really boring people because I know you people have heard it a million times, but our listeners will just be over the moon to it. Can you explain your story and what happened to you? I've got lots of stories, but I know the, I can't wait. The, the, the most important one, I suppose, is is being wrongfully arrested and convicted and sent to life imprisonment without uh, uh, the possibility of, of release um, when I was 20 years old. So uh, at the age of 20, um, as a Londoner, I was arrested. I was 
um, wrongly charged for murder in a series of robberies. I was sentenced to, uh, uh, 18 months later, when I went on trial, I was sentenced to life imprisonment without parole. And by saying without parole, it's not quite the same as the American system. It just simply means if you don't accept your guilt during the years that you're in prison, you're unlikely to ever be released as a lifer, as somebody who's been sentenced to life imprisonment for, for a mandatory life sentence. Um, and I spent 12 long years in prison, angry, bitter and twisted at, at what had happened to me because I was innocent. I hadn't and wasn't guilty of the crimes that I'd been convicted of. And so I was volatile, I was anti-establishment, I was anti-system. And by that, I mean, I fought against the, the, the prison regime, which often ended in the consequence of me being punished by being isolated or segregated and physically beaten by prison staff, etc., etc. So it was a harrowing time. And for those 12 long years, I was, um, I was held in maximum security prisons. And by that, I mean, I was in single cells in prisons that were in prisons. Um, so it was a, a really traumatic and tough time um, throughout the whole of my 20s. So, you know, your listeners can imagine, you know, 20, 21, 22, 23, 29, 30. I was still in prison, 31, 32. And eventually, through, you know, pure resilience and you know, pen and paper I, I'm talking about. I'm talking old school campaigning from the confines of my prison cell. There was a, a, a point that I, um, I, I did get access to a typewriter. Now, for anybody who doesn't know what a typewriter is, it's a kind of downgrade on a computer. So I spent many, many months sitting in my cell doing the tick, 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 one finger tap of a typewriter trying to write you know, 50-page documents protesting my innocence, sending letters to MPs, to journalists, etc. But, you know, to summarise, wrongly convicted of murder, a series of robberies, sentenced to life imprisonment, spent 12 years in prison, maximum security prisons, four crimes I didn't commit, my convictions were overturned, and at the age of 32, 12 years later... I walked down the steps of the, 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 the Court of Appeal, having had my convictions overturned. What was the reason, what, you know, what were the grounds for you, the, the false convic convictions? How did that happen? I mean, how did you end up being framed, I suppose? for? Uh, I, 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 you, you know, I, I would say, and I've always said, it's, it, it was more about fitting me and my two co-defendants into the crime as opposed yeah. to being fitted up, i.e., you know, the police often fabricate evidence or plant evidence. That's not what happened in my case. So there was no forensic evidence planted or anything like that. It was purely people standing up in a witness box saying that I did this or I did that. Despite the fact, and this is an important element, you've got to remember this happened in 1988. That's when I was arrested. Um, society and our culture was slightly different. Not that it's improved much if you look at what's happening around Black Lives Matter. But the fact of the matter, Francis, Jamie, is that the victims of the crimes that I was convicted of described their perpetrators as two white men 
and one black man. You know, they went so far as to say that one of the white men that was responsible for the crimes had blue eyes and fair hair. So Jamie would be more likely to be responsible than I was. Yet Green I, eyes, buddy. Green eyes, I'm out. Close enough. <laughs> close enough. Well, it didn't matter. I've got brown eyes and I had dreadlocks at the time and I was still convicted of those crimes, as was two other black men. So racism is one of the answers to your question, Francis. You know, there was an element of racism within the police, within the witnesses that stood up and gave evidence against three black men, despite the fact that the victim said that the, the crimes were committed by two white men and one black man. There was also a conspiracy between the police and some witnesses to, to shift and move evidence. But as I reiterate, you know, there was no forensic evidence. There wouldn't be. We wasn't involved. There was no direct evidence or anything like that. It was purely a conspiracy between the police and witnesses to give fabricated evidence against me and my co-defendants. Do you, Rafael, do you think that's because what, what happens is, and you know, the only way that I can relate to this is through television shows, right? And you watch movies or documentaries or television shows and stuff like that, and you see that a lot of time that the thing what happens is is that they have a case, right? They've got, and in your situation, you guys were dubbed the M twenty five three. That's what you you were dubbed because it was it was three people and this they had committed this crime. In these situations, what happens is is that the police need to find a a a culprit they need to find someone to fit the crime so they kind of go to all ends to make sure that you fit it you're the person so actually a lot of the times it isn't about finding who's guilty of course it is but it's more focused towards actually finding someone who fits the crime because they want to just pack them say right we've dealt with that one and we move on is that right or am i totally wrong in saying that no i think i think that is right jamie to some extent i i think what tends to happen like in the movies is that the police come fixated on on the people that they've arrested. And then what they tend to do, or what they did in my case, was they started to make the evidence, even when it started to point away. For example, fingerprints found on the car at the scene of the murder belonged to the white man with blue eyes and fair hair. But they only discovered that after they charged me and my co-defendants. So you'd think through police investigations that once they discovered that new piece of evidence that they'd go back and start interrogating that suspect. Instead, they got that suspect to make or make claims against us. It, it, so, so the police start to shift the goalpost, shift the evidence because they're already set on who they think are guilty. They believed we were guilty, but as the evidence, we were ch I was ch arrested and charged within two days. But as the evidence was gathered over a period of months, all the evidence started to point away from me and my co-defendants, but the police didn't then come and, and de-arrest us and let us go. What they did is they started to change witnesses' statements, and I mean independent witness statements, um, and they'd already paid a huge amount of money as a reward to witnesses um, that they never told us about. We still don't even have those documents today. So there is... There is an element that, that the police do, you know, go and fixate on particular individuals. And because I was no angel, you know, I had been in trouble with the police yes, and ask, yeah. lots of people around me were, were petty criminals. And then the sensational headlines, as you just alluded to, you know, the M25 free, the Kill for Kicks gang, you know, the police are hunting these men, you know, the sensational... It sells papers. It sells, doesn't it? It sells papers and wrongly convicted individuals like myself are the consequence of those headlines because the headline was the police are hunting this gang. Within two days, the police have charged those responsible. You can all rest um, easily in your beds now because this gang has been arrested, charged and locked up. 
Um, and then everybody does. They kind of turn a cheek and look at what the, the, the next headlines are. Whilst I'm sitting in a prison cell, not just a prison, I was in a prison within a prison at 20 years old. And by that, I mean, you know, confined in a cell inside a prison that was built inside another prison with, with some of Britain's wow. most dangerous criminals. But that's the thing. It's, it's so fascinating, isn't it? The, 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 the prosecution, I guess it's, well, Crown prosecution in, in, in this case. I mean, their motivation, you know, it, it seems sometimes can be conflicted because they have the, the motivation to put the, the nation or the country at ease, you know, and, and uh, you know, arrest people who, um, you know, or, or convince people that they've arrested the people that have committed some crime, some violent crime or whatever. But then also, I think it's just about stats. They want to get those, those, those crimes solved, right? If they don't have a, a solved crime, then there's just this hanging case that hasn't been... So, it's, so it is a bit of a conflict of interest there, right? I think, I, th- I think that's a structure. I mean, you could argue that's a structural thing, Francis, but, you know, you'd think that these people that become Crown prosecutors, they're individuals. They don't become a Crown prosecutor as a team, as a collective. Mm. So, so what happens between them training to become a prosecutor who wants to ensure that an offender or somebody who's committed a horrible crime or, or, or a trivial crime gets punished rightly, justly? You know, where does where does the line start to blur where they then actively participate in the fabrication or the misguiding and misleading of evidence that leads to wrongfully convicted people? I should stress that at the time of my arrest in 1988, the Crown Prosecution Service was in its infancy. It had only been set up a couple of years before. So you're right in in saying that they were desperately keen to show that they were a service that were going to do good because they replaced the police who were at that time responsible for arrest, prosecution and, you know, conducting trials. So the Crown Prosecution Service in this country was introduced in 1986 around, two years before I was arrested, because of police corruption. And then they get embroidered in the same police behaviour. That's my view. So it was a young organisation at that time, and I guess it was still finding its feet and, you know... Big case like the M25 free, successful conviction... You know, it's a pat on the back all round. That's what it is, it's gold stars. They get gold stars. It's horrible to think that, though, isn't it? It's horrible to think that people like me suffer as a consequence of people trying to get um, further in their careers. Yeah, but Rafael, what's more upsetting, I suppose, I just... Okay, I'm 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 in isolation at the moment, and I suppose it sort of relates... A lot of people have been in isolation over the past year, right? And lots of us. That doesn't even compare to what you experienced when... You're in, I don't even know what size the cell was. You can probably tell us. Nine by six. Nine by six. Okay, you're stuck in the cell. You're 20 years old. You have all the energy in the world. You have your life ahead of you. Your liberty is stripped away from you with something that you haven't done. You, you're, a, you're a black man, which means that, you know, at the time there was racism. It was, it was rife. There was things going on. So, you know, it was even harder for you to even get heard. And you have to sit there in that cell and just with your own thoughts, I just don't know how you push past that. And you talked about resilience, right? And I think there's resilience and there's resilience. I, I, I think resilience is, you know, you're getting through like a tough mudder, right? That is getting through a marathon. That's resilience, right? What you experienced and went through, that is more than resilience. That is, I mean, I, 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 there isn't a word for it, I don't think. 
There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Did you reach a point, Raphael, of, of sort of acceptance of the, the circumstances? Or did you? Because I, I guess that's one way of dealing with it, right? No, no because you kept fighting, I, kept fighting, right, didn't you? I, 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 I never did. Listen, when, when I was sat in that, so and you're right, Jamie, at 20 years old, and I didn't know all the evidence. You know, when I was in that cell within a cell, I mean, I was in Brixton Prison, and inside, as I say, in Brixton Prison, they had a prison built within a prison, and this was for some of the most dangerous prisoners, you know, IRA convicted, etc. Um, you know, I was in there with, with Freddie Foreman, a notorious gangster, one of the Richardsons, who is, again, a, a notorious South East yeah. London gangster. So these are the kinds of guys that I was confined with at 20 years old. They were in their 40s, you know, so they were experienced guys who'd look at this little kid with dreadlocks kind of ruffling on and and you've got to remember you know prison in those days when I was in there I I was pissing in a piss pot and pooing in a potty you know a transparent chamber pot that I kept under my bed and and every day for 18 months I would empty that in a recess with another 20 guys that were being held in this confined space Mm. but you asked how how I coped in that in that environment I I I suppose it was the anger there was this deep Mm deep-rooted anger inside me every day that got me out of bed and, 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 and oozed into my legs that made me walk to empty that piss pot. That, you know, you, you talk about being young and all that energy. You know, my face as a 20-year-old was, was happy when I was confined in that space. It almost contorted into a pain that has never left my expression. You know, when I naturally sit there watching television, you think I'm angry because I have that embedded anger in me that that has never ever left me but Mm. I suppose the key is that I was able to turn that anger into sitting on that cell floor with paperwork all around me trying to find the bits of information and evidence that I could go out and sit down and talk to my lawyers about he said this she said that that's wrong look at this this is inconsistent that's what drove me trying to show every day that they were lying and that's what I did. God, do you know what? It's, it's so, it's, it's, not, it's not a true word spoken. It is this thing, you know, anger, right, is seen as like a, a negative thing, right? It's, if you're angry, it's a negative thing. But actually, that's the thing that kept you alive at that point. And you, and you, does, you, know, you need, I think hope is a killer. I think hope kills, you know, whether you break up in a relationship, you hope, I think hope's a killer. But anger or, or I mean... Anger actually is the one that really, if you're angry at something, and you know, it's like Nelson Mandela, right, always says, there's that famous quote which he says, a try, a seeking revenge is like drinking poison and wanting the other person to die. It only kills yourself, right? But actually, in your situation, because you knew that you were in you were the right and you were so angry about it, that forced you to get up. Every, I just can't even imagine getting up every single day and thinking, shit, okay, this is the day that I have to do it again. 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 I take cold showers in the morning, right? That, has, that takes me a long time to get underneath that shower and do it. I can hardly do it, let alone wake up every single day in prison and getting through it. Rafael, I mean, and I don't, you know, because there's so many other stories uh, for you to go through, but I also want, you know, I saw 
uh, you describe it that you were in your bed and your door was broken down and you were woken up and told that you had committed murder. Is that right? Is that pretty much what happened in a sense? I think it was a little bit more dramatic than that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, 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 I was. Sorry to really dumb it down. Some guys <laughs> has knocked on your door. <laughs> I, I wish it was as simple as that. No, I was woken um, on the morning of the 19th of December 1988 by my flat door being broken down by armed police. And I was... Um, confronted by these police officers pointing guns at me and at one point you know they made to shoot for me I mean you only have to oh, look at what's yeah. happening in Minnesota in, in yeah. America at the moment you know a police officer points a gun they panic and they shoot luckily I had my hands in the air and I only had my boxer shorts on so you, you, you know um, they, they could see that I wasn't concealing a weapon I've never held a weapon or anything like that so I'm standing there bollock naked apart from my shorts with my hands in the air um, but I did have a cigarette in my mouth, funnily enough, because when I woke up, I thought it was my flatmate and his brother arguing. And that's what the commotion was. So as I kind of rubbed the sleep from my eyes uh, and lit a cigarette, as you do, instead of a spliff at 20. <laughs> and I went downstairs to investigate. That's when I was confronted by these police. So imagine for a moment, I'm standing there. My hands are in the air. In the doorway of my flat, there are police officers on their kneel, on their knees and standing with kind of shotguns or, or weapons pointed at me. They also wore balaclavas because they were these elite arrest police officers. So I didn't at the time know until they were saying, police, police, put your hands in the air. So the cigarette's in my mouth. It's burning down. It gets to the point where it's almost burning my lip for those who don't know so I'm kind of trying to move it out of my lips which are dry and the cigarette stuck I reached to take the cigarette from my mouth and I thought at that point when one of the police officers dropped to the floor and told me that they would shoot if I didn't put my hands in the air and you could see I didn't have anything on me so it was all part of the intimidation process it was all part of the the the, the strategy I think by the police I thinking back now of showing the public that they were arresting these very dangerous guys. Mm. And, and I was handcuffed, brought out of my flat backwards, dragged down the stairs. And that was the last I saw freedom for 12 years. Oh, mate. I'm, do you know what? Wow. Like, I don't even... I, 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 I just... I almost just... I just want to say sorry. I mean, that is just... All, I can't imagine a human just going through that. I just... It's, it's, un, it's not... It's uncomparable. I can't even think of it. But then also I, I read and, and I don't know if you feel free also to really not speak about anything that you don't want to. But I heard that you're you were in being convicted and your girlfriend um, stood up and, and went on trial against you and then later apologized for it. I mean, can you what was that? What happened there? It's a little bit more complicated than that because I had quite a few girlfriends at 20 years old. I'm, I'm proud or, or not so proud to say. <laughs> That's when you're lighting up a cigarette. You're just like, hi. <laughs> yeah. Well, look, I mean, what, what happened was um, one of the girlfriends that I was sort of sleeping with, um, on, she was also my alibi because on the night that the, the murder and these robberies were committed, I was with her and a bunch of other girls and boys um, uh, way after the crimes had actually been committed so she was a key alibi but what happened was when I was arrested and the police then rounded up all the people that they could and and I would say intimidated them she gave false evidence to the police saying that at, after the point about one thirty, two o'clock in the morning I left her um, and went out and came back 
and had diamonds from one of the robberies. Um, the police were in possession of these diamonds. The problem was the, the murder was committed at 12 o'clock. So mm. that suggests that I couldn't have been there. The first robbery was committed at about one or one between one and two o'clock in the morning, you know, 15 miles away from my location. So what happened was when I was sat in that cell in Brixton prison, in that prison within a prison, I received a letter from the same girl who'd given this statement to the police. So she hadn't given evidence to the court at this point. It was just a statement to the police, which I believe that they manipulated and, and made her right. Apologising and saying that she was sorry for giving false evidence and that she didn't realise what she was doing um, at, at the time. And you'd think that that would have been the key to to my freedom but it wasn't because the prosecution didn't accept that and so it why? became why why didn't they accept that i didn't get it because it would mean something very simple that they'd got it wrong that they'd locked up not only three black men for crimes committed by two white men and one black man but also a man that had a cast iron alibi and so they they were hell bent on on presenting a case that questioned any part of our defence. I mean, even the judge said, for example, that the fact that I had an alibi made the prosecution case um, impossible to, to prove. But if you believe that alibi, why wouldn't people believe independent witnesses? And I'll give you an example. We are here right now, Jamie, Francis and Raphael, and your audience listening to this podcast. A crime is being committed 10 miles away. Three days later, Jamie gets arrested God forbid, he's put in the prison within a prison. Me and Francis come to court and say, well, hold on a minute, we were doing a podcast at the time this crime was committed, so Jamie couldn't have committed the crime. Jamie still gets convicted and sent to prison for life. That's what I was up against. Wow. Oh, my God. So not only oh, yeah. have I got to live with the torment of being wrongfully imprisoned, but the witnesses who knew that I wasn't at the crime when the crimes were committed had to live with the fact that they knew I didn't commit. But yeah. what, they, what could they do? They've got to get on with their lives. They're 16-year-olds, 17-year-olds, 18-year-olds. Yeah. They have to get on with their lives. Doesn't the guilt eat you? I'm sure guilt, you'd be like, this is wrong. You, you would... But what can they do? They did all they could do, Jamie, by standing up in the court and saying, I was with Raphael at 12 o'clock. The girlfriend said I was in bed making love for an hour. Now, I'm a stallion, so, you know, I, can, <laughs> I, can, I, I joke about you it. You said that's was... a lie. It was two. <laughs> I, I should have stopped. You know, the, the point is, is that that was all presented to a jury and the jury didn't believe it. The judges didn't believe it. Why? Because the prosecution and the police are far more powerful than the defence. Simple. Do you think the jury had been influenced by the press at the time? I mean, because I, 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 I think they were. I also think that the prosecutor was very skilled in saying to the jury, look at these three black men in the dock. Two of them have dreadlocks. One of them is dark skin. And we know that black boys in South London, we know that black boys in England are predominantly involved in criminality. We were criminalised before we stood in the dock. So it was an easy picture to paint. Mm. Uh, and the other, the other, the other defendants. You know, were they your friends, or were they just other random people that they they picked off the street? No, one of them was my best friend. We we were a duo. Um, the other guy I didn't know at all. Um, so he yeah, was a stranger. Right. So he was a complete stranger. And he he, he was like... a complete stranger to me, but he did know my my other co-defendant and some other people. But I didn't know him at at all. Oh, that moment, Rafael, when okay, and and sorry to really bring it back to this this Mary but it's just I mean you know it's it's just unforgivable I think that moment when um 
you're in court and your your sentence has told you you're said that you were found guilty. What is what is that feeling like that you suddenly just realise it? So are, are you saying, well, they've made a mistake, so I'm going to go, okay, it's fine, we're going to fight this, or is it? You, I mean, I, I don't know, I don't know what to say here, but is it is it an unthinkable feeling? It, it breaks you as a person, doesn't it? It, it? It's like something inside snaps and disconnects from one part of your body to another part of your body. Um, you, you know, I didn't, I really didn't. I mean, it was all wrong that I, you know, was held in this cell for 18 months. But as the documents came in and I saw the evidence that was being um, mounted against me, it was it was quite clear that, that, that the, the trial the jury couldn't convict because of the overwhelming evidence. When you saw it as a whole, individual parts of the evidence, it would convince anybody. But when you saw it collectively... So when I was convicted, when the jury came back and said guilty, I, I, I changed at that very moment. I went from a... I was now 21. Um, and I went from a 21-year-old almost to an old man overnight in, in terms of of my body, my structure and everything, you kind of collapse in on yourself thinking this is the end of my life. Um, but I shouted, I screamed, as did everybody else um, who, who was supporting me in, in that court at the time. And I suppose from that moment on, where I fought with the guards that were holding me in the dock, I didn't stop fighting for 12 years. And sometimes a lot of that was, was physical. You know, I went through that physical mm. phase of always challenging the system. I would never, ever and never did accept what was happening to me never not for one moment i remember watching this documentary on netflix i'm going to talk about your podcast your netflix shows all this kind of stuff but i watched this documentary on netflix called it's a famous story called the staircase about the guy who um you know was wrongfully accused uh, and you know he he was he was told that he pushed it he murdered his wife pushing down the stairs and then and you know he went to prison and then it documents the whole thing and you see him in prison and he's been in there for 10 years or something like that are you and talking his, about making a murderer? No, no, it's called no, the staircase. staircase. I've seen it. Yeah. yeah. The staircase. Um, and you see his physique and his face. And when he's in prison behind, you know, when they go to talk to him and he's behind the glass, his whole body's changed. He looks like a, he's aged 20 years, 30 years. And I suppose that's what happens to an individual, as you said, when their liberty is taken away from you. Rafael, normally at this point, what we do is we are asked a question of the week, but I honestly am so, I have so many more questions for you. And I know we only have sort of, I don't want to take up all of your day. So uh, I'm going to end part one there, but we're gonna, you're going to stick around for Of course, no, I'm looking forward to it. Can't wait. <laughs> okay, sweet. Listen, everyone, we'll see you in part two. 